Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Neurology. This podcast is a recording of a live Touch Satellite Symposium held in October at the World Neurology Congress 2023 in Montreal, Canada. In this symposium, a multidisciplinary expert panel, including Dr. Sharon Cohen, Professor Sven Haller and Dr. Ronan Factora, come together to highlight the value of an early and accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, provide practical insights into current and emerging diagnostic tools, and discuss the benefits of providing person-centred care along the Alzheimer's disease continuum to optimise patient outcomes. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Eli Lilly and Company and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure seeing you. I'm Sharon Cohen. I'll be your chair for this uh, session. So our symposium is called Clinical Care Pathway for Alzheimer's Disease, Driving Improvements in Diagnosis. All right, here's our agenda. So we've gotten past the introduction and housekeeping. Uh, we are going to have three short presentations, one from each of our faculty members. So I will start with early and accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in the era of disease-modifying therapies. Then we will hear from Professor Sven Haller on imaging and fluid biomarkers on the pathway to AD diagnosis. And finally, from Ronan Factora, Dr. Ronan Factora, collaborative patient-centered care across the AD continuum. Each of the talks will be brief, just 10 minutes, and then they will be followed by a case uh, with a, a, a polling response and then an interactive uh, opportunity for Q&A after each session. And then we will wrap up. So the learning objectives are the following. To summarize the value of an early and accurate Alzheimer's disease diagnosis for optimal patient outcomes in the era of disease-modifying therapies. Number two, to outline the steps in diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and the recommended tests and assessments to support a biological diagnosis. Thirdly, assess the role of the multi multidisciplinary team in supporting a patient with Alzheimer's disease along the AD continuum. I'm very pleased to introduce the faculty and delighted to have uh, two esteemed colleagues joining me. Uh, I'm Sharon Cohen. I'm a behavioral neurologist and the medical director of Toronto Memory Program in Toronto, not too far away. Uh, Professor Sven Haller has come from a little bit further away. He's a neuroradiologist with a special interest in imaging in dementia, and he is uh, practicing in Geneva, Switzerland at the Centre d'Imagerie Médicale Corneval. And then we have Dr. Ronan Factora from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and he's a geriatrician uh, and internist with a special interest in dementia. So not only do we have three uh, countries represented to make an international panel, but we have three different uh, specialties represented. And I think that's what it takes in Alzheimer's disease these days. We need all hands on deck and everybody to offer their expertise. So let's move on now with our first presentation, early and accurate diagnosis of AD in the era of disease-modifying therapies. So we are dealing with a very common disease, 55 million people in the world with dementia, the numbers are continuing to grow. One in three sen seniors 
will die with Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's disease accounts for 60 to 80% of all dementias. And yet we are very bad at diagnosing this disease early um, and accurately. And it is said that over 50% of cases in primary care do not end up being recognized. And it's not just a problem with primary care, I should say. So neurologists take note, we all need to do better. Um, when a diagnosis is made, it's often several years into symptoms. I think this is generous saying two to three years after symptom onset, it can be much later. And we are not at a stage where I can tell you in our practice that we don't see people presenting for the first time in moderate stage Alzheimer's disease, which should not happen. There are lots of warning signs before that. And on a global scale, the problem is even greater with an estimate of over 75% of people with dementia not being diagnosed. So why is such a common disease missed? Well, there are lots of reasons. There are clinician reasons, there are patient and family reasons, there are societal reasons. But to list a few here on the clinician side, the lack of an easy definitive test, be it a blood test or a scan that gives us the answer, has stood in our way with this complex disease. And, and clinicians often feel, well, I can't be sure and I don't wanna make a serious diagnosis if it's not gonna be a definitive diagnosis. Then wait lists are long. Neurologists are dealing with all kinds of other problems, uh, some of which we have substantial therapies for, uh, and the limited treatment options that we have had previously for Alzheimer's disease have made this a less sexy disease, uh, a disease where we feel we don't have much to offer patients, and many neurologists have actually opted out of treating Alzheimer's disease. Imagine that, a neurologist who doesn't treat brain disease. I've always been intrigued by that, and hopefully that won't be the way forward in the future. Um, the belief that symptoms are part of normal aging, and what do you expect for being 70 or 80? We need to get rid of that idea. We need to take symptoms seriously. Yes, it's not all Alzheimer's disease, and it may not all be a neurodegenerative process. There are many other things that can affect memory, but we shouldn't brush it aside without properly investigating. Um, and the concern that a diagnosis will only uh, trigger depression, someone will jump off a bridge, they will have a catastrophic reaction, I have nothing to offer. This often causes fear in physicians. And neurologists are used to bad diagnoses, bad disease. So again, we need to get over this with Alzheimer's disease and find the most compassionate way to discuss diagnosis honestly with patients. Uh, and the lack, lack of a care pathway, am I going to be saddled with looking after every aspect of this patient and family's needs? Uh, you know, is, is there somebody in a collaborative team model who can help with this. We haven't had these structures set up and it's more than neurologists on their own can manage. So you can see that even though these are some of the barriers, they are quite weighty. For patients, I'll give you a shorter list, but many patients also feel, well, I'm a bit forgetful and my friend says she's forgetful, so I guess that's normal, you know, and, and it's just aging. And so it's sort of reassuring that everybody you talk to has a memory problem, but not really, because some of those people have the beginning of a very serious disease and maybe others don't. So this misconception that it's normal aging, again, gets in the way of people presenting early. And then those who do fear something's going on, may be reticent to come forward. Stigma is real. Uh, fear of losing one's driver's license, fear of being told there's nothing you can do, fear of finding out you have a bad diagnosis and your family are going to suffer as a result of it. These are all very realistic fears. 
uh, and many patients are unwilling to go forward for further diagnostic testing. So we, we have a lot to do here to change this landscape. The complexity of the disease has also uh, posed some challenges. And we now know that this is not all about amyloid. Amyloid is an important, very early change in Alzheimer's disease, the accumulation of aggregated amyloid. And that triggers uh, hyperphosphorylation of tau, which damages neuronal function, and we get downstream loss of cholinergic function. Other neurotransmitters are also impacted. Neuroinflammation plays a substantial role in Alzheimer's disease uh, at multiple time points throughout the disease, not just late in the disease. There's mitochondrial dysfunction, there's autophagia. There are multiple ways that this disease um, expresses its pathology, and that makes it confusing often for people who are not dementia experts. And then the symptoms, you know, we think about forgetfulness, 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 an amnestic dementia, that's Alzheimer's disease. Well, yes, but what about word finding problems, language problems? What about visual spatial difficulties? You know, misplacing objects, forgetting where you put things. I can't find my car in the parking lot. What about executive dysfunction, difficulty planning, organizing, uh, having insight, judgment, decision-making, multitasking. These are all very important things that can either be first symptoms of Alzheimer's disease or go along with the memory complaints. So you've heard that saying, if you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's. It comes from this kind of situation where presentations differ so much patient to patient, and yet the biology, what's going on in their brain may be very similar. And of course, the more cognitive uh, abilities you lose, the more impact on day-to-day -day function, first instrumental activities of daily living, then basic activities of daily living. By that, we mean personal self-maintenance activities, dressing oneself, feeding oneself, grooming. Uh, and, uh, and then there are protein uh, neuropsychiatric manifestations, even early in the disease and sometimes increasingly severe as the disease progresses with apathy, frustration, uh, depression, anxiety, often being early symptoms, agitation, sleep-wake disturbance, sometimes delusions, wandering, agitation being later manifestations. So again, a whole range of heterogeneity with this disease as far as symptom presentation. So this is maybe the, the first most important of the slides. Despite all of these challenges, uh, why does an early and accurate diagnosis matter? We don't have a cure for Alzheimer's disease. That is true, not yet. I'm hopeful, but not yet. But acknowledging people's symptoms, that something's wrong, that something's changed, is very valuable in investigating it. You need to affirm what the experience is of the patients and families, not ignore it. If you make an early diagnosis when a patient is still functional, has insight, can make decisions about how they want their care to roll out in a progressive disease, who they want to be involved, what kinds of treatments they would want to uh, have opportunities to participate in, making a will, designating a power of attorney or substitute decision makers, all these opportunities are lost if you diagnose people at a later stage when insight may be lost. Access to services. Having a diagnosis is often the gateway to accessing services, be it through an advocacy group like the Alzheimer's Association or Alzheimer's Society or other um, uh, government-supported uh, services 
with home care, day programs, et cetera. So it's not all about pharmacologic treatment. And even in the absence of any pharmacologic treatment, there's a lot that can be done to support patients in a journey with Alzheimer's disease. And that should start early. So families know what to expect, patients know what to expect, and they know what resources are there to help them. Avoiding harms is huge. Every year in Toronto, someone gets lost in bare feet in a snowstorm and dies. This should not happen. This, this is negligence on our part. There are warning signs that people are forgetful, that they're wandering, that they can't find their way home, uh, that they're not dressing appropriately for the weather, uh, leaving the stove on, car accidents, uh, that you know there are ample warning signs that people have multiple dents on their car and yet they continue driving. We need to protect patients and society from harms that we know accompany this disease. And now in the era of disease-modifying therapies, it will be even more important not to delay a diagnosis and to be accurate with the diagnosis because what we have are some new disease-modifying therapies coming to the market that require biologic confirmation that amyloid is present. These are amyloid-targeted therapies that I'll mention in a moment. And if an individual has a clinical phenotype of Alzheimer's but no amyloid in the brain, they are not going to benefit from these drugs. So we need to get the right patient. And these drugs are also indicated for the early stages of AD. So early AD, which means mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia stage of Alzheimer's disease. So if you miss that opportunity, you diagnose at the moderate stage, these disease-modifying, disease-slowing treatments will not be uh, the right fit for your patient. Promoting shared management, once you have a diagnosis, again, this allows other team members who deal with Alzheimer's disease or non-Alzheimer's dementias to get involved. Demystifying and destigmatizing Alzheimer's is so important. I have many patients who are working, shopping, driving, banking. They are contributing to society, to home life, to family life. And, you know, when you have this image of a gray-haired, feeble person in late-stage dementia, and that's what Alzheimer's is. No wonder people are so afraid of this disease. There are many people who are functioning very well and have the mild cognitive impairment stage or early Alzheimer's dementia still living at home, and we need to destigmatize this disease by showing that there is, a, there is an early stage and a broad continuum. And, and finally, um, facilitating treatment or management of coexisting conditions. So coexisting conditions are common, and you hear from Professor Haller about this. Someone may have amyloid in the brain and may have Alzheimer's disease, but they may also have cerebrovascular disease. And we need to think more precisely about the diagnosis and the relative contributions of the different uh, comorbidities that may exist. They may have coexisting Lewy body disease or other factors. So we shouldn't stop thinking once we have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. We need to make sure at each successive reevaluation that this still makes sense and that this is the only diagnosis. And if there are other diagnoses to consider, then to deal with those. So the ATN framework was proposed by Clifford Jack in 2018 originally and is currently undergoing review and revision, but it aimed to describe Alzheimer's disease by three biologic categories, 
in a binary plus minus fashion, A standing for aggregated A beta that could be measured in the CSF or by amyloid PET imaging, T representing the abnormal tau, hyperphosphorylated tau of Alzheimer's disease that can be measured by uh, P-tau isoforms in the CSF or tau PET imaging, and N representing neurodegeneration. So you have this ATN framework, uh, and the neurodegeneration, uh, multiple markers, it could be uh, reduced uh, hippocampal volume on MRI, it could be reduced uh, glucose uptake on an FDG PET scan in a particular pattern suggestive of Alzheimer's disease, uh, or CSF total tau is another way we get at neurodegeneration measures. But you can see here, when you look at all of the possibilities, if you think of this as binary plus minus for A, T, and N, that anybody in this framework who is A-positive, amyloid-positive, is on the Alzheimer's continuum. And whether they are also T-positive or N-positive depends how far the biology has progressed. And this is meant to be somewhat independent of clinical manifestations of the disease. And notably, in the last section where you have A-, minus. It doesn't matter how much someone looks like they have Alzheimer's disease by clinical characteristics. If they don't have amyloid, even if they're um, T positive or N positive, we don't consider them on the Alzheimer's continuum by this current framework. Here you can see the timely progression of biomarkers. Um, so on the x-axis, we're seeing time as dementia progresses over the years. On the y-axis, we're seeing worsening of the particular biomarker. And this is a very famous curve here that shows that we can actually detect amyloid in biofluids earlier than on PET amyloid imaging. PET amyloid imaging shows us aggregated amyloid, whereas in the CSF or more recently in the plasma, we see soluble amyloid, which rises first. Then we see phosphotau in fluid biomarkers. Uh, and later aggregated tau um, on PET tau imaging. MRI then becomes abnormal, particularly hippocampal atrophy, but other areas of atrophy as well on MRI. And there are other findings that you'll hear from Professor Holler that may uh, um, go along with suspicion of Alzheimer's disease. And then, you know, notably, in the preclinical and MCI stage, we already have a whole lot of pathology accumulated in the brain. So if we think these are early clinical stages, from a biologic standpoint, the disease has been going on for years. So even more impetus to catch this as early as we can. And in the dementia stage, that's where you see a dramatic uh, change in cognition and uh, loss, progressive loss of function. Here, just a very briefly touching on what's coming with the revision. The core biomarkers in the ATN classification are now considered A and T. Um, and uh, the non-specific biomarkers of AD pathology have been expanded from just N, which was neurodegeneration, uh, to include inflammation. So that's the I, so we have A-T-N-I. Um, and neurofilament light has been added as an N biomarker. Uh, GFAP, which is an astrocytic marker from astrocytes, is one of the ways we can get at inflammation. We can measure this in the uh, plasma or in the CSF. Um, and then we have biomarkers that are non-AD copathology. And these include 
the V for vascular when we're talking about infarcts, ischemic infarcts, or we're talking about white matter microangiopathy in the brain. This is often accompanying Alzheimer's, but is not considered Alzheimer's pathology. And similarly, S, standing for alpha-synuclein, we now have the ability to measure alpha-synuclein in uh, CSF. And this is a marker of Parkinson and Parkinson-related diseases, Lewy body disease. This is considered non-Alzheimer's pathology. Biomarkers are not just important for diagnosis and screening, but across the whole continuum, including treatment monitoring, and we can discuss this a little bit more as we go along. So now I've mentioned, alluded to the fact that we have disease-modifying therapy. So not all countries yet have these, but the FDA launched this era in 2021 with its conditional approval of aducanumab by the accelerated pathway of approval, which allows for a drug to receive approval if it has substantial impact on a pathologic process of a disease where there's a substantial unmet need and there's a strong suspicion that this pathologic impact will benefit clinical outcomes. So with the eMERGE study, a phase three study with aducanumab, we saw 22% slowing of disease, of clinical disease, on the primary outcome measure, which was the CDR sum of boxes. And July 2023 saw the FDA give full traditional approval to lecanemab, another anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody that also uh, robustly lowers amyloid and resulted in 27% slowing of disease progression versus placebo, again on the CDR sum of boxes. We also have under review now with the FDA, a third monoclonal anti-amyloid antibody, denanumab, uh, with the results of the Trailblazer ALS phase, uh, ALS 2 phase 3 study having been released and published. And here in the group of individuals who had low to medium levels of tau, all of them were amyloid positive, but they had lower amounts of tau, we saw 35% slowing of disease. So this is the best we've ever seen. Different outcome measure. Uh, the eye dress, not the CDR sum of boxes, so it's not, not an exact comparison, but 35% slowing on a measure of cognition and function. And um, if you looked at the combined group in the Denanumab Trailblazer ALS2 study, meaning combined with the high tau group, we see lesser slowing. We still see slowing, 22% less decline in the Denanumab-treated patients but it seems that the more tau burden you have, the less benefit you get. Another reason that we have to catch these patients early. Looking at the drug development pipeline, I am very hopeful that we will have more and more therapies and it will not take another 20 years for us to have a new crop of therapies. In, uh, across phase one, two, and three, we have almost 150 compounds under development. In phase two, we have the largest number, and most of these are small molecules, so we are not destined forever to be giving intravenous monoclonal antibodies. There will be other ways that we will be able to modify disease. And if we look at the th phase uh, three drugs using the CADRO um, categories, which refer to the mechanisms of action of drugs, just in phase three, 
we have multiple different shots on goal, as Serge Gauthier likes to say, to use the uh, hockey analogy. So we're not putting all our eggs in one basket. We are targeting amyloid. We have drugs targeting tau in various ways. We have drugs targeting uh, synaptic function and neuroplasticity, inflammation. You get the idea. If you look across phase one to three, we have even more of these cadro categories of mechanism of action being covered. So I think the, the future uh, is, is something we need to think of as coming soon and we need to get prepared. So let's go on to the case now. This is Charlotte. She is 68. She's had progressive, persistent mild cognitive impairment for two years. She has a strong family history of Alzheimer's disease. She's still independent in IADL, which fits with the diagnosis of MCI. Her MOCA is 23 out of 30. Her general neurologic examination, routine laboratory assessments, and MRI brain are normal. So some things have been ruled out. That's great. So she goes on to biomarker, AD biomarker testing. CSF analysis shows normal levels of a beta-42 and phosphorylated tau and elevated levels of total tau and NFL. So how do you put this together? So to be on the Alzheimer's continuum, you have to have amyloid present. And usually you would have hyperphosphorylated tau, but at least amyloid. So something's going on with this lady She's got mild cognitive impairment. We're not going to brush it off, but she does not have Alzheimer's disease as the cause. She doesn't have abnormal amyloid. She doesn't have abnormal uh, P-tau, but she does have total tau. She does have um, a sign of neurodegeneration. So let me turn to my faculty now, and, and uh, uh, maybe we'll start with you, uh, Dr. Factora. What would you, how, how would you think about this? I would agree. This is probably not Alzheimer's disease-related change, given the absence of pathology. She still has concerning cognitive issues, so there's something else going on that requires investigation. It may not be a neurodegenerative process like Alzheimer's disease. I think that we can still look for things like depression, sleep apnea, you know, vascular diseases are all possibilities. So uh, the, the idea of whether or not there's Alzheimer's disease just opens the door to look for other causes, in her case, that are potentially modifiable. Totally agree. And this is very humbling. We see this all the time. People we used to say had probable AD. Well, guess what? It's not. It's not to say she's not at risk for Alzheimer's. She's got the family history, you know, and that phenotype is suggestive. But right now, there's something else calling, causing her symptoms and neurodegeneration. Dr. Um, Professor Haller, anything you would want to add? Yeah, I think uh, Louis Baddy mentioned largely underdiagnosed. Uh, <clears throat> and I would like to review the MRI, to be honest, because it happens frequently to me that MRI is reported normal, but then uh, you still find neurovascular markers or some details. So um, that might also be something to consider. Right. So this entity of hippocampal sclerosis also that some will differentiate from Alzheimer's. So sometimes we, you know, when we have these head scratches and we feel like, okay, we've, we've tried to rule out as many things as we can. And I agree, sleep apnea and all kinds of other things. We need to revisit the history because maybe we've missed something here. But if we can't find anything, you know, looking at the scans makes a lot of sense. Okay, um, let me see if any questions have come in here. What are we going to do about the fact that both clinicians and patients and families conflate memory problems with normal aging? You maybe have some ideas. We all need to think about this. 
We need to revise how we ask our questions um, and we need to help our, our patients and families think differently. Dr. Factora, any thoughts about this? So, I always tell my patients that I never use age as an excuse for anything. And you may find something that you can fix otherwise. And the key thing is not to ignore the memory complaints and to tell families to bring it up because often they will hide it until they actually find that the function is being impaired. And by that time, we're really horses out of the barn and we need to do a little bit more work. But if we uh, address this issue earlier, that gives us a chance to investigate and have a discussion about what may be going on and what therapies may be appropriate in that circumstance. But I think that this is something that has to be addressed with the general population and with the uh, with the providers, the physicians that take care of. Totally agree. You know, in my world, there's nothing normal about losing your memory. And really, you know, we all forget things. That may be normal. Even those of us with, with excellent memories will forget things now and then. But is the amount of change relevant for that individual? So really, you've got an N of one. When you're dealing with the patient in front of you, you say your memories you know, not so good. How does this compare with how it was a year ago, two years ago? And as Dr. Factora mentioned, waiting for someone to have enough impairment that it tips them into being unable to function is really a risky game to play. We used to do that. Okay, well, they're, they're still functioning well, so, uh, you know, we'll just monitor. Now we really need to dig deeper. Okay, there's a very interesting question here. For the first case, Charlotte, would we consider a tauopathy like FTD? So with a tauopathy, um, we would expect a different clinical presentation, maybe behavioral variant uh, FTD or language variant FTD. Those would be the classic ones. But, you know, tauopathies are uh, variable. Um, and we do have neurodegeneration. Um, and so I think you can't rule that out at the moment. By clinical criteria, she doesn't have a tauopathy, you know, certainly not the behavioral variant or semantic dementia variant of FTD, nor physical or neurologic signs of PSP or some of the other tauopathies. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, you put it maybe on, uh, on the back burner, but not throw it in the garbage bag because you don't know yet. Um, Professor Holler, anything you would suggest to interrogate if we thought FTD might be a possibility? F FTD um, um, actually has more or less, um, I mean, you have the subtypes of FTD uh, that are associated with uh, patterns of atrophy. Um, and these you can actually pick up, but you really have to look for it. So it happens frequently that it's, the scan is reported normal, you know, to be at the early stages. But if you then carefully look for it, you'll find some uh, patterns of atrophy. Mm -hmm. And again, these would not be confirmatory in terms of diagnosis, but suggestive. And so, you know, I think people are surprised to learn that we actually have a wealth of very sensitive biomarkers for Alzheimer's ahead of, you know, the majority of the neurodegenerative dementing diseases that we have. But, but this will change. We'll have markers for other diseases as well in the future. I'm a new radiologist. So according to this uh, um, uh, flow, uh, we would start with the detection uh, of symptoms that are suggested of uh, cognitive decline. And this, uh, you know better than I do, patient history, caregiver perspective, medical disease, um, and so on. 
and this would then lead to the suspicion of cognitive decline. And this condition, you would uh, do uh, several assessments, including, of course, a physical exam, neurological exams, uh, maybe a blood test. I would say genotyping at this stage is uh, only for very selected cases. <clears throat> uh, then you have cognitive tests, functional tests, um, behavioral tests, and then uh, we will now focus on the part on the right, which is uh, imaging. So um, if we apply this uh, ATN uh, classification on a memory clinic setting, as discussed before, so this is an uh, unselected uh, memory clinic setting uh, in which uh, A status, uh, T status, and N status was determined. Um, and if we apply this, then actually it turns out that uh, we start uh, with this uh, A positive or A abnormal, T negative and uh, negative, then we move to A plus, T plus, and then N minus, N negative. And finally, we go to A plus, T plus, N plus. But if we add the numbers of those, it's only about half, whereas we have also other cases as already indicated previously, for example, A minus, uh, T minus, and N positive. So that means that not everybody presenting to a memory clinic is on the ID uh, classical path, as you all know. And then we have uh, different variants. Um, so that's a little bit simplified. There is maybe different people with different views on it. Um, but for the time being, just make the point that there are different variants uh, of AD, uh, visual spatial variant, a language variant, a behavioral variant, and also motor variant. And these variants also have uh, specific imaging patterns. So for example, the visual spatial variant would have a posterior cortical atrophy pattern. So here the atrophy is more pronounced in the posterior cortical regions, and that's not a typical atrophy pattern for typical AD. So taking this together, um, it's like uh, two signs of a coin. So you can say not every dementia is AD, and then not every AD is typical AD. Um, the typical imaging finding, and this uh, you all know, this is really the the key mark, the key finding of uh, Alzheimer's, this uh, atrophy, which is predominant at the mesotemporal atrophy, uh, mesotemporal lobe of the hippocampus, um, and this uh, semi-quantitative visual rating scale goes from zero to uh, four, where you can see a progressive loss of atrophy um, at the level of the hippocampi. The problem with this uh, very easy and simple score is that if you look for it uh, in a population, let's say, of controls, MCI and Alzheimer, you will find uh, that, in fact, the normal variability in hippocampal volume between all of us in the room is 20%, whereas at an early stage, MCI, the volume loss is only 7%. So that means if you do a group study, you can detect a 7% volume loss. But at the individual level, if you look only at the hippocampal volume, you will not be able to detect an MCI case because the disease-related change is smaller than the normal inter-individual variability. And one of the things that you can do is instead of looking only at the hippocampus, you can look at patterns of atrophy. So you have uh, different regions that are also involved in Alzheimer's disease. And if you take the pattern of atrophy together, you will not only increase the sensitivity, but also the specificity for the diagnosis of AD. Another thing is, um, I think, a very common approach, notably from, for example, for neuro-oncology, where we believe that one patient has one brain tumor at a time. So you, have, you can have either apples or oranges. Whereas in neurodegenerative diseases, this is completely different. So this is a very typical case, 77-year-old uh, patient. You can see uh, a certain degree of hippocampal atrophy. So this is uh, suggestive of uh, Alzheimer-type neurodegeneration. But at the same time, you can also see some kind of white matter lesions, which is suggestive of 
cerebral vascular disease. And it's, as the time goes by, you can appreciate that uh, both the atrophy increase a few years later, five years later, but you can also see that the vascular disease also increases five years later. So this is a very common type of a mixed disease. And it turns out that these diseases are in fact supra-additive. So this is a simplification, but let's say you have degree one Alzheimer and degree one vascular disease. Uh, together, it makes not two, but more than two. Right? And this is very important. And then uh, you have many other combinations. For example, this is another classic. You have, uh, in this case, a certain degree of hippocampal atrophy, suggestive AD pathology. You also have some white matter lesions. And on top of this, you have these uh, multiple microbleeds in a lower distribution, a little bit of uh, superficial siderosis. So this is the typical case of a mixed disease of Alzheimer pathology. And at the same time, you have CAA, cerebral amyloid angiopathy. So remember, both diseases are uh, based on amyloid deposition. It's not the same amyloid. It's not at the same space. But there is a, a coexistence of the two diseases, which is above chance level. So to sum up this, uh, you do not have apples or oranges, but you have apples and oranges at the same time. And this is a more recent uh, distribution of the cases. So you can see in this specific uh, authors, they suggested 44% have isolated AD. And then you have all kinds of variation, AD in vascular, AD in Lewy body, and so on. I would say that this is even uh, conservative and a, a pure, really isolated AD case is actually the exception rather than the rule. Uh, this brings us to the MRI, which has a lot of uh, imaging features for uh, notable cerebrovascular disease, which would be a lecture in itself. We don't have too much time to go into this. Uh, we have the white spots and the black dots, so the micro, micro bleeds and the um, cerebrovascular disease. But we also have other markers like etat criblé, um, cortical microinfarcts, strategic infarcts, and also uh, hippocampal microinfarcts, which are very important, uh, but largely underdiagnosed. Let's move on to diagnose. I mean, differenti differentiation and diagnosis is a little bit linked, but for the purpose of this talk, it's a little bit separated. And here we want to move uh, to nuclear medicine imaging, notably. Um, and here today, we have three different imaging markers available. Um, so FDG-PET, uh, we can say is more or less the classic and the most established uh, uh, imaging marker. Um, here we can see the normal FDG uh, at the top, which shows uptake notably in the cortex. Uh, the typical pattern of hypometabolism in uh, Alzheimer is a bilateral parietal uh, hypometabolism, which can be a little bit um, asymmetric, but you can see that it's very good for differential diagnosis as different diseases, for example, frontal dementia would have a hypometabolism in the frontal regions. Um, the tau pet um, is an imaging marker which is closer uh, to the onset becomes abnormal closer to the onset of the disease. So this is notably good to rule in. The normal tau uptake looks like this. There is virtually no uptake, whereas the abnormal uh, uptake shows, uh, or the abnormal image shows uptake notably in the, in the temporal regions. And finally, we have amyloid uh, PET, um, which is abnormal up to 10 years before the onset of the symptoms. So that's the reason why amyloid is notably good to rule out. Uh, AD. So if there is no amyloid deposition, it's very good to rule out. The normal scan looks like this. And so you would have uptake only uh, in the white matter, but not in the gray matter. And in an abnormal scan, you would have uptake and also in the gray matter. 
maybe as a side remark, because that was mentioned before, we think that, a, that this is a little bit specific for Alzheimer. Uh, this is not the case. Uh, you would also see abnormal uh, amyloid scans, for example, in chronic traumatic uh, encephalopathies and chronic trauma. You can see these abnormal scans in uh, military blast uh, injury uh, person. And due to the uh, current situation, we will unfortunately see this more. So uh, remember, abnormal amyloid is not uh, specific for Alzheimer's. Now, um, that's a lot of uh, different, uh, three different uh, PET scans for one single participant or one single person, that's a lot. So that's why I'm interested in ASL. So this is a technique that is uh, done in MRI. So the patient already is in the MRI scanner. Uh, it's a technique in which we can label the blood, the inflowing blood at the level of the neck. And then we can measure the inflowing blood at the level of the brain. So uh, it's a non-invasive technique, patient already is in the scanner. And due to the fact that the metabolism and the perfusion in the brain is closely linked, you can see that the typical patterns of FTG PET on the left uh, remarkably resemble the patterns of hypoperfusion that you can see on the ASL. So the idea would be to then do more uh, specific uh, PETs with amyloid or tau rather than the unspecific FTG PET. Closing up with the uh, biomarkers, um, uh, I think the uh, notably the blood biomarkers are, uh, of course, very interesting and, and appealing because in my experience, many people do not like to have a CSF function. Um, here, uh, this is, for example, a study showing clearly abnormality of this uh, blood-based biomarker. But remember here, this is symptomatic AD. And of course, we want to diagnose patients early on and there was additional work needed. So to conclude, uh, MRI is a little bit the working horse, I would say, measures atrophy, cerebral vascular markers. It's more or less a late event. Uh, the amyloid and tau PET is more sensitive in early stages. Um, it's, however, expensive, uh, uses irradiation and has limited availability. Um, CSF is an early marker, um, but needs uh, the uh, lumbar puncture. And blood marker certainly is a very easy and interesting marker, but needs a little bit more uh, work and also has the lack of localization information. And then treat and monitor, I think this will be covered in the next uh, uh, lecture, so we can basically go over this very brief, briefly here. So the second case would be the case of Margaret. So you can see this is a 74-year-old uh, female. We have uh, unexplained memory loss and confusion with a progressive lack of cognitive abilities. Um, irritability feels agitated, um, several falls that requires hospitalization, unable to drive, but still lives independently. Mocha is 19 out of 30. And now the question to the audience is, uh, so what would you do next? Uh, the choices are MRI, um, amyloid PET, uh, CSF analysis, uh, CT scan, and then finally blood-based biomarkers. As a neuroradiologist, of course, I'm very pleased that the majority of you have uh, selected the correct answer, I would say. But of course, it's not the only one. Um, maybe I can give this again to my clinician, uh, clinical colleagues. What, what would you do at the first uh, step, Sharon? Uh, okay, yes, structural brain image would be in order. Um, and uh, Professor Holler has showed us the wealth of information that we can get from uh, a structural brain image like MRI. CT is not going to give us the same definition. We can look for, uh, you know, in a case of somebody who's falling and confused, we want to look for uh, uh, ruling out uh, bleeds, tumors, uh, subdurals. 
Um, but can you, you know, also look from medial temporal lobe atrophy? I appreciate the variability that you described, 20%, so I'm humbled by that. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, look for microbleeds, other signs, maybe suggestive of Alzheimer's. So a huge amount of information. Um, and, and that's not to say that I wouldn't go on to something more specific. If the MRI scan's not showing me multiple infarcts or some reason why this lady's falling and is confused, then I may want to go on to PET amyloid imaging or CSF biomarkers for AD, but I would start with the MRI. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. I think that if you have access to MRI, that would be ideal to look for potential causes for a person's cognitive impairment and falls. Uh, but depending upon where you practice, sometimes MRI is difficult to access. Sometimes you have no choice but to use CT and that we understand the limitations, but you can get the information that you can. Even when you advance uh, beyond MRI and you're thinking about Alzheimer's disease pathology specifically, and you're considering the other imaging modalities, whether it's going to be PET scan, uh, amyloid, or, or CSF, you really have to look at what resources are available where you practice, because not all of those tests are available. The laboratories that are available may not actually be able to process those. They may be sent out, and there's some time associated with that. There's also the issue of cost, uh, and some of these tests are quite expensive, uh, especially if uh, you practice in an area where uh, the patients had significant copay. So there's factors beyond sensitivity and specificity of the testing that we have to consider. So the impact on patient overall, we also have to consider uh, and just try to balance the wealth of information that a test would provide with the burden uh, of the test and the cost for the person that we're going to put them through. Yeah, I, and, and I think it also depends on the country. And so different countries may have, some countries would uh, prefer CT over, over MRI, but um, yeah, it's very good. Thank you so much. Okay, we have time for uh, a few questions, and there are some good questions here. Um, and one is specifically for you, Professor Holler. So we'll start with that one. Uh, can you explain, oh, sorry, how does underlying vascular pathology affect the management of a patient with AD? We'll help you out with that. <laughs> but for the management, I think you, you, uh, you know better than I do, but I think it's uh, just something that is overlooked. And also when I see uh, radiological reports, I must confess that sometimes the vascular co-pathology uh, is not very well described. So. Fair enough, fair enough. So it, it cuts both ways as I see it. You know, if there are a few little um, lacunes, then clinicians are often quick to say, oh, this is vascular cognitive impairment or vascular dementia and not look further. Even if the lacunar infarcts are not in strategic locations, there aren't very many, they're very small. And someone's not having a, you know, clinical manifestations of stroke or stepwise decline. The other situation is there can be considerable um, cerebrovascular disease. And uh, even if there's minor cerebrovascular disease, you want to uh, investigate why. You want to be um, very careful not to ignore optimization of uh, control of stroke risk factors. Uh, to reduce the burden of cerebrovascular disease. I like the one plus one equals more than two because we think cerebrovascular disease and Alzheimer's pathology may not just be additive, but synergistic in the brain and impact individuals in ways greater than any one of the two pathologies. So there is a lot that can be done in terms of controlling hypertension, diabetes, uh, improving uh, dietary factors and cholesterol. Uh, and we shouldn't 
ignore these. We shouldn't become complacent and say, oh, there's a few lacoons, maybe this is uh, vascular dementia and stop. Um, we need to do something about that if that's what we believe, but even if it's co-pathology, we need to manage it as well. Um, just getting a little bit more eloquent in the, in the era of disease-modifying therapy, the amount of cerebrovascular disease that accompanies Alzheimer's pathology may be make or break in terms of whether someone is going to be a good candidate for anti-amyloid immunotherapy. Just a quick addition to this, um, not all the markers have the same uh, value. So for example, it's very common to have some white metal lesions of Pasekas 1 or 2, um, but uh, we did quite a lot of studies on microbleeds, and uh, so it turns out that you have less commonly microbleeds, but if you have microbleeds, they are, have a much higher clinical impact, and they have a much more uh, negative uh, prognostic value of sub on subsequent cognitive decline. So if you have microbeads, which is not always the case, and it depends on the imaging uh, technique that you use, but then it's probably more uh, mean or more severe vascular marker than, for example, some T2 lesions. Thank you. Anything you wanted to add, Dr. Victoria? I was going to say that that picture is so useful when you're counseling patients. It's nice for them to actually see what's going on in their brain because you can't look at it the way you can look at a rash. But if they can actually see the stroke, the, the bleed, the cerebrovascular disease, then they understand what is actually going on in there and that helps them actually be on board for any management that may follow afterwards. It's particularly helpful when that enforces what a primary care doctor actually says about controlling hypertension, diabetes, making sure that the sleep apnea is well addressed. Uh, and then reducing the risk of stroke, uh, secondary risk of stroke if necessary, uh, because the picture will explain to the patient with more clarity than medical language. So very useful if you've got it. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good point. And, and when you showed Professor Holler the, the image of somebody who has a certain amount of white matter, you know, hyperintensity, uh, and then several months later, more, you know, showing how this can evolve. Okay, this is what we have now. This is what we don't want to evolve into. Let's make sure we get the blood pressure down. I, I agree. The pictures are very helpful. Uh, we'll go on to another question. Um, okay, are there places using ASL perfusion MRI routinely? Yes, I would say more and more. Okay. So, um, so ASL sequences are available these days on, on every vendor. Um, I must admit, it's not as easy to do these as a standard T2 sequence, um, but it's available everywhere. And then uh, if you want to challenge your radiologist and ask him to do it, and um, needs a little bit of tweaking in the beginning to have a nice image, but it it's, uh, has high potential, I'm convinced. Thank you. Yeah, this was a learning for me. I appreciate I appreciate that. And there's another question on that as a follow-on. Can you comment on sensitivity specificity of ASL versus SPECT imaging? Um, so actually, we compared it not to SPECT, but to FDG-PET. So, so the scientific validation studies that we did um, is to co uh, compare um, ASL. Uh, so we, what we do are basically our Z-scores. So we compare an individual case to a reference data set. Well, with age and gender matched people, and then you get these patterns of hypoperfusion, and they uh, very uh, closely resemble the patterns of hypometabolism that you get from FTG PET. So from uh, and all this, this is published. Um, um, so it's a very good correspondence between hypometabolism patterns on FTG PET and hypoperfusion patterns on FTG PET. As F, sorry, on ASL. MR. So I would think you're using more of a gold standard when you're comparing with 
perfusion on PET than SPECT, which is sort of an inferior modality. Yes, but to me, the selling point is a little bit like this. I mean, I don't want to, FDG PET remains the easier method, which is easier to compare between different institutions and so on. But to me, it goes like this. Um, if I have to get an amyloid PET and maybe a tau PET, and then I can, I'm already in the MRI anyway, because we do the scan. And I can choose to stay three more minutes into the MRI to get the ASL without contrast, without irradiation, without uh, anything. Or I come back another day to get an FDG PET, which costs 1,500 Swiss francs, which needs irradiation. Uh, I mean, my decision is quite obvious. So. And uh, I do not want to say that we completely replace it, but the thing is that the patient, it's my opinion, and the patient is already in the MRI. Um, you add this PET scan, uh, sorry, the ASL scan for four minutes, and it's a very good triage tool. So you have a clinical case, uh, typical symptoms, hippocampal atrophy, hypoperfusion, ASL, everything fits together. That's an Alzheimer patient, that's done. Huh? So what else do you need? Nothing. Yeah? And then you have the patient or people who are afraid having memory loss, but everything is normal, then you're also done. And then you have uh, those cases where it doesn't fit, clinical symptoms are strange, imaging is strange, ASL is strange. And these are the ones that you want to then triage for the more uh, difficult tests, I would say. Thank you for that. I know some of us will be going back home and talking to our MRI radiologists about this. Thank you. <laughs> okay, we have time for one more question. Um, okay, can you explain the difference between phosphorylated tau and total tau? Okay, that's a very good question. So, <laughs> I don't know if, okay. So, with Alzheimer's disease, um, the abnormal tau that is fairly specific to Alzheimer's is hyperphosphorylated tau. There are many different isoforms of hyperphosphorylated tau. You may have heard of P181 and 217. However, this phosphorylation of tau is the way that tau becomes abnormal in Alzheimer's disease. Now, if you have neurodegeneration from any cause and brain cells are destroyed, you will have an increase in total tau. Tau is a microtubule associated protein. When neurons die, they release tau, but it's the hyperphosphorylated tau that is considered a core feature of Alzheimer's disease and the total tau, a marker of neurodegeneration. My pleasure to hand over to Dr. Factora for the final talk. Switch gears a little bit. So you've seen this uh, slide to some degree already, really thinking about the pathways that persons take as they go through the evaluation process, detection, assessment, differentiation of cause, cognitive impairment, diagnosis, and then working way to treatment and monitoring. The most important thing about this is that we don't do this really by ourselves as clinicians. There are a lot of people who can be involved in this evaluation process and the management process. It's important to know who these individuals are because it is a lot of work to guide a person from the beginning to the end. So if you think about this stepwise approach at the beginning, you usually have the family members and the primary care doctors thinking about a person who has memory problems, families concerned about persons with memory, bringing them up to the primary care doctors, asking them for the evaluations. Oftentimes it's usually families and not usually anyone else. It's a rare bird that actually is gonna be the doctor that says, oh, I've detected cognitive impairment, let's go ahead and work this up. Usually it's brought to their attention. So screening is unusual, but that is a modality that can be uh, implemented. 
once we get to that point, we can think about the whole evaluation process. And there's some things that a, a primary care doctor can do if they're comfortable, but this is where you can really involve neurologists and geriatricians and uh, neuropsychologists and psychiatrists to evaluate these patients, to perform cognitive testing, to decide next steps for evaluation, uh, and then to move forward with any testing, working with our clinical neuroradiologists to identify the best modalities, to look for causes of cognitive impairment, and then help to firm up diagnosis. Along the way, there are other members of the team that can be very useful. And when a person is told that they have problems with their memory, sometimes they'll have a negative reaction. They'll have problems coping and dealing with the memory problems being present and the impact, particularly negatively, on their functional status, on their self-perception. But then we also have to remember that it's not just the patient that's dealing with this. It's the family members, because this is not just treating the patient overall. We have to treat the patients and their caregivers, and they can go through some level of stress as well. And beyond just treating behavioral problems related to dementia, this stress can be uh, very difficult and affect quality of life. And this is where we can help uh, ask the help of our clinical psychologists, mental health providers, psychiatrists to deal with this issue, to counsel our patients, to help with mood-related disorders, to help to address behavior-related disorders. On top of that, we address other issues related to function with regards to diet, modifiable risk factors. This is where we can actually reuse uh, persons like our dietitians, uh, our uh, speech and language therapists, to think about compensatory mechanisms, uh, and then uh, our occupational therapists to find ways to modify the home, to keep a person independent, uh, to modify their uh, uh, their ability to take care of them, themselves at home so that they can remain at home. And, and the goal really is modification of the environment so that they can maintain independence as much as possible. And then later on as the yeah. disease progresses, when we're thinking about transitions and supports, this is really where the key players, uh, social workers to actually help out, to look for resources to support a person at home, to help the families out providing caregivers at home, and also to consider planning ahead for next steps if a person can no longer stay at home. Where would they reside? You know, what resources are available to actually support them? Where would they go? And that planning is one of the most important parts of early diagnosis. It gives the patients and families time to think ahead and anticipate these changes rather than working from a crisis point. So if we go through this continuum again from the standpoint of processes that, that, that occur, you know, from the first part, think about detection. This is really where a non-dementia trained healthcare provider can actually come into play. So uh, primary care providers, family doctors, general practitioners, there's practitioners, they can identify cognitive impairment either initially brought up by families. You can also implement screening you know, in the outpatient setting to identify cognitive impairment that is missed. And there are some surveys that show that up to 90% of cognitive impairment is missed in primary care. Okay, uh, and this can be a very quick memory test to actually identify individuals who have cognitive impairment that has not yet been brought up and that may prompt further investigation because that's still a wide range of different problems that can cause cognitive impairment. Once we get to this point where the cognitive impairment is present, we can really do more in-depth testing. We can do cognitive testing. We start thinking about differential diagnosis. This is where a dementia-trained healthcare provider you know, who's comfortable managing and evaluating persons with, with cognitive impairment and dementia can also move forward with this testing. Yeah, on top of that, we have also dementia specialists that can do the same. We know that our primary care doctors are pressed for time. There's competing interests, and that's often the reason why memory problems are not addressed in primary care. They're busy dealing with high blood pressure, diabetes, heart failure, COPD, vaccinations, cancer screens, all the number of things that they're responsible for. This is un it's, it's invariably that falls to the wayside. So we can lend our help by addressing these individuals who have memory problems and provide them with the appropriate pathway for evaluation. 
And then in more detailed fashion, we can actually use more detailed testing to identify Alzheimer's disease-related pathology. We can use our information we have to communicate diagnoses to families and to patients and select appropriate treatments. And then beyond that, really initiate treatment, monitoring for adverse events, monitoring MRIs, uh, if you're going to get uh, monoclonal antibodies and then performing repeat testings down the line, all part of a workup that can be done by the dementia specialists or dementia trained healthcare providers. So a lot of resources available for patients and families. Now, once again, going through the roles and responsibilities, the primary care doctor really is the one responsible for identifying uh, cognitive impairments presence, the suspicion of this. And this can lead to referrals to neuropsychologists, geriatricians to do the cognitive testing to differentiate from other potential contributing factors, confounders. You know, we can help to monitor progression of the disease, initiate initial management, initial evaluations. And then as a team, you know, with clinicians and nurse practitioners, monitor these individuals over time because they will change. If it's a progressive process, cognitive impairment progresses, functional decline advances. There may be involving behavioral-related disorders, and there may be increased needs that that person actually has that we're going to have to address over time. So this becomes a longitudinal process of care. And then, you know, as things progress, function declines, this is where we can use our other resources available, occupational therapists, social workers to help preserve function, preserve independence, provide resources, support a person at home. It becomes a team-based model for addressing this disease process overall. The key thing to keep in mind is that everything that we talked about revolves around the patient. That's the most important thing. Now, what are we trying to achieve for the patient in front of us? And we can think about disease pathology. We can think about uh, modalities for identification on imaging. But the goal really is what is this going to do for the patient? And for the predominant cases, it's really about preserving function and preserving independence. So from the standpoint of detection and diagnosis, you know, what is that important for for the patient? Well, it helps them identify what it is that's going on. It helps to validate that they are having memory problems. It helps to validate that, that the, the families, that there are memory problems going on. And it helps to prevent and anticipate future problems. If you have early diagnosis of cognitive impairment or dementia, then you can forestall problems with chronic management of things like hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, COPD, related emergency department visits and hospitalizations that can often come about when a person is not able to take their medications properly, care for themselves so we can put in resources to prevent these things from happening. We can develop plans of care to anticipate this person's needs, and then also make sure that those resources are available as that person progresses and if they need that help over the future. So it's not just the care at home, but also medical management. So we also have to think about the, the needs of our of the clinicians overall and what actually we should be uh, addressing as clinicians. What resource do we need to actually provide this care? And then thinking ahead when that person transitions, uh, because there is a lot of things to anticipate uh, with regards to progression of the disease, development of functional decline, uh, thinking about a person moving into a more supervised setting, assisted living, nursing homes and whatnot, and then providing that education and support to provide that information to patients and families, provide them with those resources, have the staffing necessary to do this, because it's a lot to do as a clinician, to take care of this ourselves. And in that case, we really have to work with our colleagues to make sure that these issues are addressed, questions are answered, and plans of care are developed. And then this care is ongoing uh, as this person moves forward. So there are several challenges related to uh, Alzheimer's disease care that really can focus on, because when we're thinking about these pathways, we want to make sure that we build them in such a way that they help to address the persons that we're providing care for. 
One of the key barriers is awareness of the benefit of early Alzheimer's disease di diagnosis. It really talks about helping to uh, overcome the barriers that the person may have overall. You know, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge that they have memory problems. They're afraid about the diagnosis. But as treatments advance, as we know that we can still address these memory problems, you know, through pharmacological and non-pharmacological means, there's something that we can do about this beyond just treating the drugs. You know, we can anticipate the needs that a person has. We can also help them to plan. We can involve them in the planning process and the anticipation process of what their needs may be in the future. And it becomes their plan. They become engaged enough so that they can know that this is not someone bringing them and throwing them to a nursing home. They're deciding how they want to live their lives still. So their independence is still maintained despite the fact that they may have cognitive impairment. On top of that, we want to develop patient-centered support. And this really thinks about uh, you know, the, 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 the process here for our clinicians and making sure that we have all the right pieces in place. Now, primary care doctors involved in this, uh, 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 neurologists, geriatricians are you know, aware for how these patients may be referred to them, uh, additional allied health personnel that can help us and provide this care, and then connection to community services to uh, develop plans of care to help support a person in the community. Once those resources are in place, then we know that the general population and primary care providers know that there is something that we can look forward to that can help our persons out. And on top of that, we can build processes to integrate these teams over time, it, but it still has to uh, be revolving around uh, making sure that these key players are identified and that they are all involved in these, these uh, care plans. So the primary recommendations for patient-centered care, we have to know that the person know the person who is living with dementia. We have to know who they are, not just who they are as a person or medically, but what is their social situation? You know, what are the resources they may need in the future? We have to recognize and accept the person's reality. They understand that this is a progressive process, that they're going to be losing function. And, and this is something that they're going to have difficulty with dealing with, and the families will have difficulty dealing with. And we have to be able to help them through this. So this provides this, is, this, this requires us to have some empathy uh, to plan ahead for these individuals. We have to identify and support opportunities for meaningful engagement, again, not just with the patients, but also with their families and their caregivers, because it's going to be, as clinicians, working with that caregiver dyad. And then building and nurturing authentic caring relationships, not just with the families, but you know, as care, care plan teams, when we all are looking to achieve the same goal for the persons that we are in front of us, our patients, we have to build those collaborative relationships and maintain a supportive community for all individuals, not just as clinicians, but also you now as a community support patients and caregivers as they go through this process. And then as these changes occur, as we develop newer modalities for diagnosis and management, we reevaluate how we're doing, how well we're taking care of patients to make sure that we make appropriate changes to this care plan. So the potential impact for the care coordination team, this really helps to ease stress of diagnostic processes and destigmatizes Alzheimer's disease. Once we put the processes in place and we have the patients and the providers and the general population aware of this, that makes it easier for people to acknowledge that there are memory problems, but there's something that can be done. And this empowers patients to seek care for themselves, it empowers families to seek care for their, their loved ones, and it increases the quality of care that's provided to them and to healthcare providers to support these conversations. And it also increases our capacity to deal with these problems. There's a huge number of people are you know, worldwide who have cognitive disorders and dementia. We have to have robust processes in place to deal with these numbers in an efficient fashion and in a fashion that delivers empathetic care. And then we all these processes also helps us to improve adherence to recommendations and guidelines and standards of care.
So just thinking about patient education on anti-amyloid therapies priests for Alzheimer's disease, once again, thinking about the goal for the patients. And the discussion has to be between the patient, the healthcare provider, and the caregiver. And there are specific aims related to this that we always have to counsel our patients about, that this particular type of intervention is meant to deal with early symptomatic stages of Alzheimer's disease to remove brain amyloid plaques. We want to make sure that that goal for the medication is in line with what the patient's goal is going to be, because we cannot just throw a drug at an individual unless it provides a goal for that patient overall. We have to con consider the risks and benefits and the caveats related to these uh, medications. And that becomes, again, a very individual assessment, looking at the risks uh, and you know, what the potential problems may be down the line, the burdens of cost, the burdens of testing. And then what are the alternatives? You know, all part of this discussion overall. So we're going to think about this case. This is our last case, number three. Uh, this is Stephen, an 87-year-old male. He's got a history of increased confusion and memory loss. He has high blood pressure and a stroke survivor with type 2 diabetes. He's been diagnosed with depression. An MRI of the brain shows multiple microbleeds, right frontal infarct, and mesial temporal lobe atrophy. So the options are genetic counseling, develop a multidisciplinary care plan, consider anticoagulants for stroke prevention, or refer to a psychiatrist. So develop a multidisciplinary care plan seems to be the most common. That's, it sounds like you're listening to what I had to say. That's great. Uh, and I think that that's the key thing here. And there are a lot of factors just in this short vignette to tell you that there are a lot of comorbidities, a lot of things going on with this person that are beyond just Alzheimer's disease-related pathology that we have to address. Uh, and you know, this would involve talking to the primary care doctor about things like secondary stroke prevention, diabetes management, but then also thinking ahead for this individual with regards to a plan of care, because we know that you know, whatever else is going on underneath may lead to progression. So I didn't know if Dr. Cohen if you had any additional comments about that. No, I think you answered it beautifully. Uh, you know, we we need to be thinking very broadly about how to manage patients and families. And and someone like Stephen, he's got a lot of things going on. Yes, he may have Alzheimer's. He certainly has cerebrovascular disease. He's at risk for more cerebrovascular disease, uh, and and he needs lots of help. And uh, I would stay away from anticoagulants because that might make him <laughs> bleed more. So, uh, yeah, it, it takes a thoughtful team approach to to give him the care he needs. Thank you very much for your talk. Okay, so um, we have a couple of questions here. Um, oh, more than a couple. Okay. Um, Dr. Factura, right back to you. What structured gait assessment would you recommend? Okay, so structured gait assessment. Uh, so, you know, in a clinical setting, we'll often use a timed up and go just as a screening tool to assess a person's gait, risk for falls is really the most important thing. Uh, beyond a full physical examination, we'll have a person walk down a hallway, we'll be able to assess gait speed, and, and the routine physical examination beyond that, assessing steppage, turning, arm swing, and uh, posture. Now, when a person really has problems with gait and I'm worried about something like Parkinsonism or normal pressure hydrocephalus from, the, from a clinical diagnostic standpoint, that's when I would engage my neurology colleagues for specific diagnostic tests. If I wanted a full gait evaluation, I would actually rely on my physical therapist to assess just as well balance as, as well as uh, a gait in a more detailed fashion. They really do a more detailed assessment than I would be able to do in clinics. So once again, they're relying on my colleagues to actually get more information than I would get in a clinical setting. And a lot of it revolves around time. Thank you. Okay, we have some more questions. Um, 
Okay. So there are a couple of questions about ARIA, and we, we didn't specifically talk about ARIA. So for those who might not be familiar, ARIA stands for Amyloid Related Imaging Abnormality. And it is the main side effect that we are cautious about in giving anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody therapies. It's a, um, a, a class side effect that occurs with various frequency depending on which uh, uh, drug we're talking about. Uh, and it is an imaging finding in the sense that you see it on MRI, either in the form of edema, vasogenic edema, or bleeding, microbleeds, um, most commonly sometimes superficial siderosis, and uncommonly you can see macrobleeds. And this can happen in individuals with Alzheimer's disease, but more common with anti-amyloid therapies, monoclonal antibody therapies. So the questions are, how do you discuss the risk of aria with a patient or their caregiver when starting aducanumab or lecanemab. So these drugs are available in the US, um, not in Canada, although I've been involved in many clinical trials with patients on these drugs, but maybe Dr. Factor, you might be the, or, or sorry, oh, yeah. Professor Haller, go ahead. Yeah, I can maybe also answer something from the imaging point of view. Um, we have uh, not discussed this today because of time issues. We actually have an extra slide, but it doesn't seem to work. Um, so, um, what is very important to notice is that uh, pre-treatment uh, uh, MRI is very important here because if you have an increased number of microbleeds before the start of treatment, that would uh, increase the risk of aria, notably the hemorrhagic form, the aria age. Um, so that is uh, something that is new. And then what is new from an imaging point of view is that actually um, if there is a suspicion of aria, um, imaging must be done. Um, right away, so it becomes an emergency 24-7, um, and then you would have to detect it very early on, and you would have to stop the treatment, and then in the majority of cases, it will be a limited form, and you want to prevent to become a major form. So imaging has two new aspects here. One is uh, pre-treatment risk assessment, which is basically uh, vascular lesions and notably microbeads, and then the second part is uh, treatment follow-up. Yes, thank you. And what Dovetailing into what you said, what I what I didn't mention is although ARIA is an imaging finding, an MRI finding, it is symptomatic in the minority of cases, but sometimes symptoms can be severe, although rarely so. And we do monitor for it, and the monitoring schedule may be unique to each monoclonal antibody because titration schedule and other things are different about the antibodies. Uh, but MRI certainly plays an important role in monitoring for ARIA and determining whether one needs to discontinue treatment, hold treatment until ARIA resolves, or what exactly the clinical management is going to be. Um, so the question here, uh, how do you discuss the risk of ARIA with a patient or their carer? So I don't know if you want to take that or you want me to jump in. I can take it a little bit sure, and then I'll let you add. So you know, when we're thinking about the monoclonal antibody treatments, really thinking about what those findings mean uh, and what potentially they may cause for an individual. And as you said before, they're typically symptomatic, but or asymptomatic, but we want to try to avoid them and they can occur throughout the entire process of the infusion. So uh, when the fam uh, patients are aware of that, often, it's done in the context of why you would not be a candidate, especially if they're on anticoagulation. But then afterwards, you know, in terms of discussing with the patients, knowing that these may be present, but you don't have symptoms, a lot of people will feel more inclined to proceed when they feel that there's not going to be a 
progression, but yet there's still those that are anxious enough that these can convert to severe bleeds. They still have to make their individualized decisions. I think we have some understanding of what may happen, but then clinically, I think that we still need to see what will happen as these infusions become more broadly used. I think there's a lot of un, uh, unanswered questions yet about what may occur you know, as monoclonal antibodies are used throughout, maybe you can have some more insight to that. Fair enough. We, we have quite a lot of clinical trial data for each of the antibody programs for aducanumab, lucanumab, which are on the market, and we have uh, the physician uh, prescribing information uh, for RAM management and monitoring, um, but real-world practice changes things a little bit, and uh, so we will learn a lot uh, in, the, in the first few years of these drugs being on the market. Maybe we'll just uh, wrap up by any concluding comments. Professor Holler, do you want to um, provide any insights on uh, no, what we talked very, about? Very interesting uh, discussion. Um, ARIA, of course, uh, we couldn't really discuss in detail today. And then from imaging point of view, maybe just a few uh, other things that will come. Um, I think myelin mapping will emerge as an imaging marker of neurodegeneration. Um, then we have uh, imaging of the nigrosome 1, which is an imaging marker for Lewy body dementia, which is heavily underdiagnosed. So I think there's a uh, stay tuned. There will be some uh, things happening in the imaging domain. Thank you. Dr. Pactoria, any final comments? Sure. I think uh, the key thing, I think, is to make sure that we reach out to our communities, primary care doctors predominantly, to make sure that they know where they can send persons to, talk to them about the process by which they actually identify individuals with cognitive impairment, and maybe uh, identify processes that would work a little bit better. Building those teams are so important, and the best way to actually address memory problems that are very frequently encountered in our older persons. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, well, I learned a lot from our faculty. I want to thank them. I want to thank you for your excellent questions. We have a lot to do, but we have reason to be hopeful that we can help people more than we could in the past. We now have uh, the ability to diagnose early and accurately. Um, it's going to vary from geography to geography, what our resources are, but we need to work together and have teams in place so each of us can go home and think about what we could do to contribute to a new era of uh, diagnosing and identifying Alzheimer's disease early when people are still capable and have reasonably good quality of life to enjoy for many years. So I thank you very much, audience and uh, our speakers, and we'll, we'll close with that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access further activities on Alzheimer's disease on touchneurology.com.